Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. I don't think that there's any coincidence that Trump's kind of maniacal racism and hatred of the Muslims, Mexicans, and the Blacks, that that happens while there is a simultaneous looting of resources from the bottom of society to the top. Hello, welcome to the Clown Show on the Box Media Podcast Network. My guest today is Kianga Yamada-Taylor. He's a professor of African-American studies at Princeton University, the author of From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation, and most recently, How We Get Free, Black Feminism and the Combahee River Collective. And How We Get Free is fascinating book for some of the things I'm obsessed with right now because Taylor is able to trace the term identity politics to its first usage, which is in this collective's manifesto. And it means a very different thing, uh, a more inclusive thing, has a very different political project associated with it than what we think of as identity politics now. So as a piece of intellectual history, it's fascinating to me, and I was excited to, to chat with her about it. We also talk about some of her broader ideas, uh, leftist critique of the Obama administration, and quite a bit more. My email, as always, is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here is Kianga Yamada-Taylor. Kianga Yamada-Taylor, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. So where did the term identity politics come from? Well, the the phrase identity politics was first coined in the Combahee River Collective Statement, was a, which was a document that was created um, in 1977. It was written by three uh, Black women who were members of something called the Combahee River Collective. And basically, it was a concept really to capture the political experiences of Black women and to I think really explain the source of Black women's radicalization uh, as a way to say that the politics of Black women were shaped not by doctrine, not by political prescriptions that were quite heavy in the late 1960s and 1970s, um, but first and foremost, they were shaped by the experiences of oppression that Black women faced as people in American society. Um, and so Demita Frazier and Barbara Smith's 
twin sister, Beverly Smith, developed this concept as a way of of capturing those experiences. Is that something different for Black women, that identity is the prism through which politics is shaped? Or is it something that was more visible to to them and to the, the, the folks behind this collective because of the way their identities were, were treated by the mainstream? I guess my, my question here being, is identity politics something that is only true for certain identities? Or is it something that is actually true for all politics, but it is less discernible when it's the majoritarian identities that hold power and render themselves less visible? Well, I think, y- yes. On on the one hand, identity, uh, whomever you are, uh, is a formative factor in the political ideas that you gravitate towards, what you decide to do, how you decide to act upon uh, those ideas. Um, that's That's all part of the formation of individual politics and to some extent even group politics. But I think... What the women in the Combahee River Collective were trying to situate were the particular experiences of Black women at this historical conjuncture, meaning that many of them had been active in the anti-war movement, which was dominated by what they would refer to, and I think historically has been referred to as the white left. And they felt that within that milieu, that their experiences were not captured. And their experiences within the white feminist movement, Barbara Smith in particular, Barbara and Beverly Smith um, in particular, were active in the founding of the National Organization of Women now. And so they felt that their experiences among white-led, white-dominated feminist organizations also didn't capture their history, their background, their politics, they also had this experience within the Black movement, which by the late 1960s uh, has become even more dominated by Black nationalist politics, which are very masculine and male-oriented and focused. And so part of the project then of identity politics was to map out within this context, really, of the left, what was happening to Black women and how we could understand the political radicalization in particular of Black women. And so even though there is a, I think, universal aspect to which this framework holds true, I do think that the authors of this statement and the people who gave life to this political framework, this concept, uh, were thinking very much about the situation of Black women at this at, at that particular historical moment. One of the interesting um, pieces of, of your book is in your interview with Barbara Smith, she talks about her surprise at the way identity politics came to be understood as an exclusive, as a, as a, as a way of creating a politics that other people couldn't tap into and how different that was from her understanding of it, which was that you would have to have many identities coming together. You would have to have a politics of solidarity if you were to have a mm-hmm. politics that was effective at all. Can you talk a bit about the way the term um, mutated from feeling inclusive to exclusive? Sure. And I, I think that, that that happens, right? I mean, they introduced a term that in its actual time, I'm not sure if it even took on the 
uh, significance that it would come to take on. And so they introduced a term, and in some ways it took on uh, a life of its own. And I think, you know, in, in some ways that's an interesting way that language works. And, you know, we the, the phrases and political points and, and frameworks that mean one thing in one context and come to mean something somewhat different in some circumstances, completely different from uh, the original intentions of the authors uh, or progenitors of it. Um, we think of a phrase like queer and its evolution over time. Um, and so some of that has to do with the changing political context. And I think that is certainly the case with identity politics, which Barbara Smith not only was important in the feminist movement in the 1970s, but uh, plays a pivotal role in the movement of feminist and feminist studies, uh, what become known as women's studies, uh, and the pivot to the academy in the 1980s. Uh, and I think that this was a common experience for uh, different sections of the left who, I don't know if you could say they left the field of political activism, but I think that the terrain of political activism changed sharply from the 1970s into the 80s and where uh, the opportunities for movement building and for activism uh, were dramatically different than they had been in the 1960s. And so you had an entire cohort of people go into the academy. And in some sense, they take these political frameworks, whether it's Marxism, feminism, in this case, uh, something like identity politics, and they use these not only as having a past history as the foundation for strategic and tactical interventions in real, live, active struggles, but now they become units of analysis for understanding the world that we live in, but also perhaps a kind of prescriptive formula for the possibility of a different kind of world altogether. And I think that in the context of the 1980s, where there is a complete unabated retreat from the kind of political egalitarianism that in some ways was embodied in the expansiveness of the Johnsonian welfare state of the 1960s um, and the early 1970s, there is a, a sense of retreat, of being embattled. And for African-Americans, and I would say Black women um, in particular, there is a, a, a sense of estrangement um, and deep political uh, aloneness. And in that context, identity politics is no longer really a kind of tool of activists to be able to explain the particular worldview uh, or set of experiences uh, of Black women, but it becomes a way to differentiate um, uh, Black people. Um, and it's not just uh, African-Americans. Identity politics becomes a way of explaining the social reality uh, for or is used as a way to explain the social reality of different marginalized, um, socially oppressed uh, groups, and in some ways to explain why they are marginalized and why they are oppressed and why there is something unique um, to that oppression, which becomes a way of cutting that particular group off 
uh, from other people. So that, in effect, um, that without having this particular experience of uh, an LGBT experience or a particular experience of African Americans or a particular uh, Chicana uh, uh, experience, that there is no way for you to understand um, uh, my oppression. And it doesn't necessarily mean that we can't um, work together, but there is something uh, about that uh, that even in some ways cuts off the the possibility of activism or changing that situation. And I think that that has to do with the downturn in political activism, the feeling that Margaret Thatcher perfectly captured, that there is no alternative to this new social reality um, that is then amplified again you know, that we have reached the end of history, that there is no longer any conflict around the major ideas in the world, and that uh, this these kind of market-dominated racist societies are the best that we have to offer. Um, and you really have to find a way to situate yourselves uh, within that. So in many ways, I think that the, the deeply pessimistic uh, use of identity politics um, is really just a reflection of the the dramatically changed circumstances um, that come about with politics in the 1980s. T- tell me a little bit more about why that would be, because I understand, I think, the way in which making your identity legible to the people you're working with is a way of 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 having your politics and making it possible for that politics to be interoperable with with other people's politics. Um, but but tell me a little bit more about this theory because I haven't heard it before and it's interesting that it was in the Reaganite Thatcherite um, move that that turned into something closed off because the the way it often seems to me is that there's a certain power in people foregrounding their identity and then there was a backlash as people tried to take um, marginalized groups making claims and uh, dismiss their claims, right? If what you if what you want is identity politics, it's narrow, it's particularistic, it's a group. And what I want is politics. It's universalistic. Anybody can be part of it, right? It's it's for us all. Well, there's a real power in my position. I've really just grabbed the, the high ground. So it often seems to me to be an opportunistic sort of weaponized rebuttal. Um, but but I'm interested to to to, to hear this, this sort of alternative version of it, that maybe it actually was a, a response even among the left to a, a changing environment for organizing and activism. Yeah, I, I think even if you look at the um, the high point of uh, the black movement in the you know in the in the late nineteen sixties, there is a backlash. There's an undeniable black backlash, but there is also uh, a way in which the black movement from civil rights, even through the urban insurgency, the black urban uh, insurgency through the the middle to late 1960s, has a way of creating sympathy, even among a significant portion of the, the white population. It's very contradictory. So there were polls taken um, in the, the weeks and the month after the Detroit and Newark uprisings in 1967. Uh, These were Harris polls that were um, taken in that month of August. And what those polls point to is that for most white people, the, the riots have convinced them that we need a new kind of WPA program, that we need new 
uh, housing programs, that we need an even bigger social welfare state uh, to deal with these issues and problems that have been exposed um, by the Black movement. And so I think even in the the turmoil of the 1960s um, and into the 1970s, uh, there is still a sense of hope and possibility. I mean, Barbara Smith doesn't, um, in the uh, Beverly Smith and Demita Frazier, don't write the Combahee River Collective Statement until 1977. And so even by the, the, the late 1970s, there's still uh, a belief that um, coalitional politics are not just desirable, but they're, um, they're preferable. Th- this is th- what we need to do um, in order to achieve some form of Black liberation, uh, of women's liberation. And I think that 10 years later, um, or, you know, by the end of the 1980s and into the early uh, 1990s, I think that that kind of hope and optimism, um, not just that, uh, you know, coalition politics are possible, but the the very basic idea that was palpable throughout the 1960s and the early 1970s that we can actually change the world, we can change um, our society, uh, that, you know, is connected to anti-colonial uh, uprisings and the the actual lived experience of seeing people change their society and change uh, the the circumstances under which they live, much of that has been crushed. And it's not just been crushed in a vacuum. It has been crushed through what you can describe as a weaponization of identity. Uh, So you get, you know, the welfare queen uh, of of Ronald Reagan, which, of course, is invented in the 1970s, um, but takes on uh, 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 an entirely new um, meaning in life in the 1980s. The war on drugs, the creation or the amplification of the notion uh, of a black underclass, which uh, takes a hold of all social science study, of of all uh, urban policy uh, during that time period. And so um, in that sense, it's coming about at a time where it begins to feel like the possibility of change has been uh, completely cut off. Uh, And so identity politics in that circumstance becomes uh, almost a way of introspection, a kind of internal politics, uh, a kind of way for oppressed and marginalized people uh, to talk to each other um, and to really turn away um, from this idea of not necessarily coalitional politics uh, with each other, but really, even in the 1960s, this was the, the idea of collective and social change um, was in some ways rooted with the idea um, that white people would resist the dominant social order um, and that white people could play some role uh, in a movement to transform society. That is what was seen in the civil rights movement. It was seen in the anti-war movement, in the women's movement, even though there were deep divisions and debates and political strains and tensions there was still an activist presence which could validate a sense that if they figured it out, if they got it right, we could build um, a type of movement that could transform society. And through by the end of the 1980s, there's none of that. There, You have episodic movements among um, African-Americans, among other marginalized 
uh, groups of people, but it does feel like it's coming from the margin. It no longer feels like it has a mass character um, that is something that has the ability uh, to shape and transform the United States uh, uh, in any significant way. And then you have uh, the wholesale defection of many ordinary white people uh, away from the Democratic Party into um, the Republican Party, which feels like it cuts off uh, hope or the possibility of a different kind of, uh, that a different kind of world um, is possible. And so for me, that is where the the pessimism, uh, the isolation and marginality uh, of of identity politics um, in the 1980s comes comes out of. And in some ways, and it's not to, I mean, in some ways that can be read as uh, blaming people who were victimized by uh, racism. In in many ways, it's a normal reaction. Uh, to a, a an increasingly suffocating racist uh, society that the U.S. is becoming, which is in stark contrast, again, from what was happening in the 1960s, what was happening and believed was possible in the 1970s. There, there is a, a hard turn away from that. And the, the racism coming from the state in combination with the defection of ordinary white people uh, from the Democratic Party and the sense of uh, social justice that the, the state can be used for good um, is what Black people and other marginalized people are reacting to. So it's not a kind of self-generated nationalist impulse to uh, pull away from, from politics. This is in reaction, um, I think, to what is happening uh, socially. What 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 is your story for why you have that mass defection in the let's say the seventies and 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 into the eighties? Because it, it does seem to me that there are some important resonances in that period mm-hmm. and the one that we may or may not be in. Right? I, I always feel I always want to be careful and humble about what story we're actually living right now. I'm, I'm not sure we always know. Right. But but that that moment where there's a, a moment a feeling of possibility, a feeling that things could really be very different. And then there is like a revanchist backlash mm-hmm. that overwhelms that and makes them um, and and pulls them further to the right in some ways than they'd even been, uh, not in every respect, but but certainly in economic respects. Mm-hmm. What 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 is your story for what happened there and what needs to be learned from it? There's a couple of things that are happening, both subjective and then objective. I think uh, subjectively that. It obviously has deeper roots than something that just appeared um, in the in the 1980s. Um, I do think that um, in the aftermath of the 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 1960s, or in, in some ways as a direct result of what I described before, was the enormous sympathy that is generated by the Black movement, which is to say that prior to the 1960s. Um, you know, the debates about the roots of Black poverty are, it's either biological or it's culture. But in in either case, there is something inferior about Black people in the United States. And so the movement, both its Southern aspect and the insurgency outside of the South, um, or that is urban, located in cities, dispels much of that, which is to say that it is hard to characterize people as 
biologically or culturally inferior um, when they are fighting for the right to vote, when they are fighting to um, really be included um, in American affluence, uh, even whether it is uh, a civil rights march where people are dressed in their best clothing, or whether it is uh, an insurrection in Detroit, um, that these are uh, rebellions for inclusion to be included in the largesse of uh, U.S. society. And so in order to begin to, to fracture that, there is a, you know, there's a return to a um, ideological um, onslaught uh, to basically try and uh, undermine that notion of respect for uh, African Americans by, as Richard Nixon described it in uh, the 1972 presidential election, turning that into a race around the welfare ethic versus the work ethic. Um, and so there's a concerted effort at demonizing uh, African Americans and the idea that they are disproportionately dependent on the fragile w welfare state um, in the United States. And so that comes along with a kind of political demonization uh, of people as personally irresponsible, as defective, uh, and as besieged by chronic domestic dysfunction. And so part of that is, is political. Part of that is about the U.S. Uh, representatives of the U.S. state, mostly organized around the Republican Party, trying to divest the country from the Johnson welfare state. And so in, in that sense, if you reduce these problems, not to one of structure, not to one of institutions, but to problems of personal defect, then really what we need uh, is personal transformation as opposed to any kind of uh, structural change. And that is a drumbeat that picks up in the early 1970s that seizes upon different crises in social welfare programs, whether it's the distribution of welfare itself, whether it's a low-income housing program that goes awry, um, that the, the, the problems of these programs are pinned on individuals um, and not necessarily on their operation or other problems unto themselves. I agree on that kind of big-picture demonization, but why do you think it works? Because that, that's where I always think the, the the hard question is that people are trying to push this, and um, for people who want to reform the system in in in, in more fundamental ways, and I, I think you're one of them. The question a little bit is why do people pick up on that? Why, when you have that sort of effort at demonization, this effort to to take things that are systemic and structural failures and inequities and turn them into individual failings and cultural problems, does it work? And and do people respond? And and for the future, how do you inoculate them against that? Well, I think it corresponds with a common sense. Um, I think that it corresponds with an idea that is quite prevalent in American society, which, you know, for all its own, almost its entirety has denied the presence of classes, um, has denied that, uh, you know, or, or has promoted the idea that uh, the U.S. is a place of unfettered social mobility and that you know, if you work hard enough, um, then there are no limits to what it is that you can do. These are these are very powerful ideological 
uh, tropes, especially when they are repeated over and over again, generationally. And then when you have some kind of, you know, over time, there's a way in which that that logic lines up with what happens um, in people's lives. And so when you obscure the role of government in creating uh, a massive white middle class in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, um, you you marginalize the role of government and you sort of pitch it as, oh, this this is the product of your own hard work. And when you see Black people living uh, in ghetto, uh, in, in isolated, segregated ghettos, well, that's a product of their lack of hard work. Um, there's a way in which this corresponds with uh, the 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 common sense that people have about uh, how their own lives work and and how society um, and how society functions, and I think that it's something that is reinforced over and over again. And so, in the 1980s, when you have uh, the uh, onset, I mean, the onset begins earlier, but really, the 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 impact of what it means for an economy that. Uh, was robust and boomed for, you know, for 25 years or so uh, to begin uh, to to go into decline um, and for your life circumstances to begin uh, to change. It's much harder to try to situate that, I think, to institutional forces when the drumbeat in politics is always about how these are the results of individual failure. And I think that that is always strategic, that when it's, in, when it's individual failure, then, you know, that, that's up for an individual to try to figure out. When it's systemic failure, um, it's, it requires much more. And the way that that narrative changes has always been through mass political um, struggle, whether it was in the 1930s, uh, or whether it was in the 1960s. And outside of that, the the explanation of individual uh, 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 failure has come back. And I think that that is very uh, uh, powerful and sustained over decades. And that becomes the easy explanation for things when you're fed that on a regular basis. I think we can see it today in the way that the debate slowly begins to change about immigration, you know, and that maybe there is something to the presence of immigrants um, that has to do with my own individual uh, economic situation. Maybe there is something to Black crime in Chicago and all of these other cities. Uh, And why can't those people get their stuff together? Um, I think that the steady drumbeat of that uh, over time that is accepted by liberals, by conservatives, by the Democratic Party, to varying degrees, and certainly by the Republican Party, it becomes a kind of one-sided narrative for how we understand progress, how we understand poverty in the United States that only gets disrupted when social movements emerge that challenge that dominant narrative. I'll be right back with Kianga Yamada-Taylor after a short break. Support for The Gray Area comes from Shopify. Imagine an action movie where the hero has to sell 1,000 Barbra Streisand t-shirts in 72 hours to save a major American city. Save the city from what, exactly? That's for audiences to decide. But how would they do it? They'd use Shopify. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth. Whether you're the main character in a tentpole action movie or the real-life CEO of a multinational company. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you sell it. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operation. They also offer something called Shopify Magic, an AI-powered helper created to help you stress less and sell more. Try it for yourself. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash box. You can go to shopify.com slash box now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash box. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. I think it's a good bridge to to your book from Black Lives Matter to, to Black Liberation. And in it, you talk about uh, police violence as linked to broader conditions of inequality. The only way to, to to end violence is a broader restructuring of society. Can you talk a bit about that that argument in that context? Sure. I mean, part of the the argument um, around the persistence of police brutality um, over time. Uh, which is to say, as I write in the book, that there is no golden age of um, Black uh, relationships with the, the police for that as long as Black people have been an urban population since the early, uh, since the 20th century, um, that abusive and violent policing um, has been uh, a feature of that. And so I, when I write about the particularities of the 21st century, um, and what, in some ways, is different is the way that policing has become the public policy of last resort, meaning that in many localities where there has been, a, again, a, a bipartisan um, decision in some ways that we are no longer going to expand um, not just the social welfare state, but the public sector in general. and so. What that means in education is a pivot to more privatization, charter schools, uh, shrinking the imprint of uh, the public sector on the delivery of education, on the delivery of health care, on the delivery of water and other public services to give the private sector uh, a bigger role. Um, and that the impact uh, of this in African-American communities, both urban and suburban, has been not good. Uh, and that is evidenced by growing rates of unemployment, of poverty, and all of the social crises that come from that combination of factors. And so instead of investing in programs and policies as a way to attend to that, municipalities have decided to invest in policing. I write about Chicago, where in 2012, 52 public schools were closed, and budget deficits were a driving explanation as to why that had to happen. 
There was talk about underpopulation in the school buildings, but really the overriding factor had to do with deficits. But then you see that the city of Chicago has literally spent more than $500 million to settle cases of police abuse and murder over a 10-year period. And so you see that when it comes to some finances, then we're willing to figure out a way to make that happen, where in other cases, that's not the case. And so this is part of the kind of social reality now where there is still almost a complete reluctance to engage in the kind of institution building that has historically been uh, somewhat effective in stemming the crises that uh, appear arise in in urban settings and suburb and now uh, the majority of black people live in suburbs um, that are appearing in poor and working class suburban areas, and that policing has become the way uh, to deal with that. And you know, attendant to that has been imprisonment and and what people refer to as mass incarceration. Those three factors have worked collectively that has resulted in uh, the premature death, disappearance of young Black men. Um, It has led to uh, police state-like conditions um, in many Black-majority communities. And so looking at this over time and seeing this as a recurring feature in some form or another over the last century, Um, and certainly in the first two decades of this century, uh, for me and that book raised the very specific question as to whether or not uh, we can ever expect a different outcome in American society, given this kind of social uh, arrangement and the persistence of this problem. So the, the, the big point you make on that in, in the book is that you write capitalism is contingent on the absence of freedom and liberation for black people. Do, do, do you want to expand that argument a bit? Sure. I mean, I think, again, that this is uh, a conclusion that, you know, I, I have drawn looking at the uh, conditions of African-Americans from emancipation uh, to the current moment. And for me, that was really captured um, almost symbolically by the murder of Freddie Gray in Baltimore in April of 2015. And when I was writing about that, I realized that Freddie Gray was picked up by the police almost to the day of the end of the Civil War, the formal end of the Civil War, the signing um, of the armistice at the Appomattox Courthouse in Virginia. And That was a very, it was 150 years to the day, and it was a very powerful symbolism. And the idea that, you know, this war that uh, was supposed to usher in a new period of freedom for Black people, and here we are 150 years later, where parts of that are true. And I looked at the city of Baltimore, where you had a, at the time, a black woman who was mayor, a police chief who was African-American, half of the police officers implicated in the murder uh, who were eventually exonerated, but who were implicated in whatever happened with Freddie Gray were African-American. A, a significant portion, I think maybe half of the city council in Baltimore, African-American. 
you know, 40 miles from the White House or from Washington, D.C., where the first Black president was residing, um, in the same city where the first Black attorney general was residing. And if all of that Black institutional power couldn't prevent Freddie Gray from having his neck snapped, then it raises questions about what will it take for Black people to be free? And what I meant by freedom was what will it take for Black people to have a level of self-determination that is not motivated by economic coercion, um, physical coercion, uh, or any other coercive element in society where people are making decisions based purely on what is best for them and their family. And so I cannot imagine in this society where the way in which it is currently organized under capitalism, that this is something that is possible because there's not a single period in the last 100 and now, what, 55 years, 54 years, where that has been a, a, a possibility. And at every step along the way, there has been a what has been presented as an achievable goal. So we have emancipation, and then there's a hundred-year lull, but then we have, well, let's get rid of Jim Crow. We can get rid of second-class citizenship. We can obtain the right to vote. For African Americans, both South and North, East and West, in the late 1960s, we can enter into politics. We can become a part of the political class so that it's not white people governing us in the places where we live. We can govern ourselves. And so now we have 50 years of that. And at the end of it, we get Freddie Gray and his broken neck. And to me, that was symbolic of a broken political and economic system that in 150 years of freedom has not been able to produce uh, substantive freedom for the vast majority of Black people in this country. I guess I wonder, though, why you turn to capitalism on that. I mean, I think a lot, a lot of the problems you just pointed out with capitalism are very present. But are there alternative economic systems that seem to generate a level of equality and tolerance that, that, that we don't see here? I mean, I'm Jewish and under communism, we didn't do great. And so I, I wonder about whether or not the economic systems are really what is driving what seems to be a tendency in societies to latch on to difference um, and attack it and find outgroups and treat them horribly going all the way back through kind of almost every version of human organization we can think of. And sometimes we do it on religion and sometimes we do it on race and sometimes we do it on, on class and sometimes we do it just because like they're over there and we're over here. But but why capitalism? Like how did that how, – how is that the, the um, root cause that you identified? Well, I think that there is a, a particular um, relationship to capital that African-Americans have. So if you get the, the entry of Black people, Africans, into uh, what becomes the United States as property, and that the, the entire political history, the economic history of African people in what becomes the United States is completely bound up 
with what becomes capitalism, uh, with what becomes a kind of market-based economy. And I think that 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 is hard to uh, separate from the experience um, of African Americans. So I don't I don't deny that there is a a global history of what it means to be an other, what it means to be viewed outside of a dominant group in a particular place. The problem, I think, is when that is then mapped onto an economic system that appears to thrive on exacerbating difference, I think by the arrangement where under capitalism, you have a small, uh, tiny group of people who control the vast majority of resources. And the question I always try to think about, to use the, the framework of the Occupy movement, how does the 1% retain such dominance over the 99%? And it is through division over and over again. I don't think that there's any coincidence that Trump's kind of maniacal racism and hatred of the Muslims, Mexicans, and the Blacks, that he pounds that drum louder than anything else. And I don't think it's any coincidence that that happens while there is a simultaneous looting of resources from the bottom of society to the top, like generational theft of resources from bottom to top. I think that those two things work hand in hand. And I think that if we look throughout American history, there has been an obvious effort to harness racial resentment, racial fears, to stoke them, to fan the flames, while simultaneously stealing from the poor and working class to redistribute that wealth to the powerful. And so, you know, there is an aspect of which you can say that separating out or 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 blaming others or or looking uh for people uh to to victimize um is evident uh throughout much of human history. I would say perhaps not all of human history. I think that there uh, are very interesting indigenous social developments. What was the North America and throughout this this hemisphere um, that may have looked at the social organization differently um, than in, in other places? But I think even where there has been a proclivity towards demonization and, and blaming others, that there's something else that happens when you map a profit motive onto that that accelerates that process that brings a lot more resources uh, to that process and that amplifies the potential impossibility of destruction, of human destruction into that process. Yeah, I think there's something to the idea that if you harness capitalism or or any of these, I mean, for that matter, democracy or a bunch of the other uh, sort of running systems we have, into kind of its its evil dimension. Um, you can have this tremendous amplification and then you can have it, it seems to me, go the other way. I mean, something I was thinking about while you were talking about the 
tendency of folks on top to use division to retain their statuses. I think that's on the one hand entirely true. And on the other hand, if the top 1% were voting, I mean, I'd have to look at this, but from what I've seen, I think Donald Trump wouldn't have been elected um, as people like he does not do better among richer people. Uh, he is not. There are a lot of people in the top 1% who find him odious. And it one of the things that strikes me within all forms of to, to connect this in some ways back to our identity politics conversation is that one of the tricky things in when trying to build a politics out of an identity is to overwhelm its internal differences, right? That there's the 1% becomes an identity. Certainly, um, it becomes an outgroup. Um, but, you know, there you have one percenters who are incredibly conservative and incredibly liberal. You have people there who want a lot of justice and people who don't. People just don't care, right? You have a lot of um, uh, alienated and uh, selfish folks in, in in that community. And so there's this way in which I don't know. I've been thinking a lot about difference and how identity gets gets harnessed for for this book project I'm doing that we were chatting about uh, earlier. And the thing that is so striking to me about it is just it seems to me that you can pull up the human tendency to see difference so easily and you can pull it up in so many different contexts that there's always this dream that we will find a context that will free us from difference. We will find a context in which people will finally see that they are they're one, that they are together, that at the very least are many more of them who share interests than, than who don't. Um, and that 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 hope, while it emerges in some ways, right, you know, nations are able to bring together more people than you were able to have, you know, when we were in small hunter-gatherer tribes, that we're in this just constant war with the part of the human psyche that wants to find a group to compete with, that wants to find a group to blame for our problems. And, and as you say, that can be harnessed um, and it can be fought against and people at all levels of society do both. But it it seems to me um, – when I look around at other societies that I don't, I can't find the one that solved it, right? Which makes me think that it runs deeper than something particular to ours. I don't think that for just on the 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 question of Donald Trump and the um the one percent, I don't think that there has to be a single particular way uh, with which uh, a dominant class can exert its um, politics or uh, authority. So Donald Trump is one manifestation, but you know I'm I'm always wary of of people who uh, counsel you know Joe Biden who thinks that we just need to get back to get back to normal. Um, and you know I think about uh, under Obama, who is the complete antithesis of someone like uh, Donald Trump. That many of these same dynamics um, are in play. They just they look differently. But there is a reason why there was a Black Lives Matter movement that exploded, uh, erupted during the presidency of Barack Obama for all of his well-spokenness, spokenness and 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 good manners and the again antithesis of the kind of boorish racism uh, of Donald Trump. There is a, a similar kind of outcome that has now, of course, been accelerated by the Trump administration. So I don't I don't think that there is a particular way that the still kind of domination or, do, you know, of 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 the one percent expresses itself. The Occupy movement developed um, uh, under the, the the Obama administration as well. And so I think. Um, in terms of society, is there a different way to to organize our society that'll produce a different outcome? 
You know, I, I used to think that I knew the answer to that. And I've actually tried to be, become a lot more um, humble about what I think I know. And so I don't know. To be perfectly honest, I have no idea. I think that there is a better way. I think that if we even, I'm talking about full-blown, you know, uh, uh, communism, but even if we were to implement the very tepid reforms that Bernie Sanders um, has championed, universal health care, free college, uh, you know, things things like this, the basic social democracy that has existed elsewhere uh, in the world, which one tells us that it's not the solution to all of our problems. Um, but could it actually uh, transform the lives of millions of people in the United States? Yes, I think so. Um, and then beyond that, I don't know if, if we had a society... Um, and I talk some about this in the Black Lives Matter book, probably without fully developing it. But the idea of what it would mean to have a society where those who created uh, the wealth and resources um, in our country were the ones who were actually uh, in charge of how they are distributed. What if those people were the ones who were in charge of um, how dis- you know how decisions were made, how how our society was was functioning, governed, um, what what it might look like, how might that be different? Because the way that it is now is we have a Senate where the the average wealth is three million dollars. We have the House of Representatives where I think the average uh, wealth is nine hundred ninety thousand um, dollars, where you have literally. The Congress is made up of millionaires and is led by a billionaire president. And meanwhile, you know, the the median income for African-Americans is somewhere around $40,000. For white people, you know, it's between $60,000 and $70,000. And so there's, there's a mismatch between the people who govern this country and what the lived experiences are um, of the vast majority. And so I don't know if we flip that, if we had the people uh, who are currently, you know, on the bottom, on the bottom 99% actually in charge of uh, directing this society. I don't know what kind of difference that would, would make, but I know that it would be different. And I guess I've reached the point where and I think a lot of people have reached the point, and it's evidenced in the fact that you have an open socialist who is a leading contender for the Democratic Party nomination. It is something that is hard to believe if you are a student of American history in the 20th century in any serious way. This is an unbelievable uh, development. And how has it come to be? Because the status quo, the you know, is, is not working. And so I don't know if that means that, you know, people are ready for socialism or if socialism would quote unquote work. But what I do know is that the arrangement that we have now isn't working. And if it were, you certainly wouldn't have a person describing 
himself as a democratic socialist, as a possible candidate to be the nominee for the Democratic Party. And that, I think, speaks volumes of what I think is, it can only be described as a political crisis um, in the United States. That speaks volumes about it. This is a, a good time to squeeze in a quick break. We'll be right back. I want to go back to something you said about Obama because it informs some of my thinking about Sanders too, which is the, the point you made that there is viewed from one perspective an irony, viewed from another perspective a lesson, that it was during the administration of the first black president, the, the, the rise of Black Lives Matter, that he's then followed by Donald Trump, that here you have this leader who – for better and for worse, maybe, really in his own politics, tried to be consensus-oriented, tried to bring down tensions, tried to hear all sides, and that he himself was an incredibly polarizing figure. He was racially polarizing. He was politically polarizing. He was polarizing uh, at almost every level, even though his whole political career and personal brand was about depolarization. And one of the things that it's made me more respectful of is the way that uh, change releases its own energy, that it releases its own counter energy, right? It's no accident, to your point, either that Black Lives Matter emerges during Obama or that he's followed by Donald Trump, right? Or that he's followed by like – like if you put – like if you pulled the antimatter out of Barack Obama, you would get Donald Trump. And I think you're seeing – I'm starting to see this now in the in the Democratic primary too where um, – and this maybe also goes back to our conversation about the 70s where there's the rise of uh, a much more left Democratic Party, much more left on economics, much more left on social justice, um, much more left than Barack Obama on things like immigration and, and, and racial justice. And that that's also pushing and going to push the Republican Party to the right and create its kind of like own, own backlash politics. And there is some way in which – like a lot of the, the 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 force in politics comes from this question of when a movement emerges, is it able to overwhelm the backlash it creates to itself or does the backlash it creates to itself overwhelm the movement? And I think we're really like with Obama, I think we honestly don't know yet. <laughs> you know, we'll see if it looks like. Donald Trump, you know, 10 years from now was the last gasp of something or was the re, you know, reemergence and re-empowering of it. Um, with, with Bernie Sanders, I have no idea, right? I mean, you could imagine maybe he gets elected and does Medicare for all and it blows up like the Clinton 1994 plan. And then there's like this like dark winter for healthcare for 20 years like there was after that. And it, it's made me much more um, – I don't know if pessimistic is a word. I don't think that's quite the right word, but it's made me much more cautious uh, I because I always have a tendency to look at – I'm somebody who is excited about the prospect of political change usually, and I have a tendency to look for its threads emerging and then and then you know imagine where they could go. And it so often seems to me that change brings the very thing that unwinds it uh, with it in American life, particularly given how difficult our system is and resistant it is to any kind of big systemic change. And it just creates such a, a difficulty for trying to follow, trying to follow or imagine where any of this would end up. I just would have never imagined at the beginning of Barack Obama's presidency that this is where we'd be, either on the right or the left. You know, a couple of years after its closing, and maybe that was my own naivete. No, I don't. I mean, I don't think anyone um, could have predicted this. I think, but I do think that what some of us did predict that it didn't happen is part of the problem, which is, I think, you know, Obama is running um, and is elected in the midst of extreme economic 
crisis, historic crisis. And I think what many of us thought was that he would take his mandate and really impose um, a, a kind of uh, recovery um, that was to the benefit of most ordinary people. And instead, the exact opposite happened, where the banks are bailed out and there's a you know priority placed on making sure that uh, the economic institutions are best situated. And, you know, you can talk about the logic of that and whether it made sense, but the reality is that that very quickly um, established a pattern in the same way that um, the public option uh, for Obamacare uh, was immediately, you know, given up. And so I think that, to me, it's not quite accurate to say that Obama you know, was the the consensus candidate, you know, or or president who wanted to just get buy-in from uh, from both sides and just toe the middle line. I think that um, Obama was always very quick to capitulate the left side of of the aisle or the Democratic uh, side. That he would go above and beyond to appeal to Republicans as a, as a way of showing his goodwill in governing. And I think that, you know, that was a mistake coming out of the disaster of the Bush years. Um, and I think for for young black people and also for the, the young people uh, who made up, young white people who made up the heart of the Occupy movement, many of whom had worked on Obama's campaign. The same thing with, with uh, young African-Americans, people who voted for Obama like they had never voted before. And to constantly, for at least for young Black people, to not only not have a president intervene on their behalf, which is the reason why uh, he was elected, for in their eyes, what, which is the reason why he had a historic turnout um, of African-American vote, was demoralizing over and over again. And not just uh, a kind of betrayal, you know, whether it's Troy Davis and not intervening to even make a statement on behalf of Troy Davis, the black man who was on death row in Georgia um, for a crime he didn't commit, but to then insult black people at almost what felt like every opportunity. So the jokes about, you know, black parenting and, you know, black mothers feeding their kids cold fried chicken in the morning, uh, you know, getting Uncle Pookie or Cousin Pookie to get the, the vote, just saying things about black people that no white politician could ever get uh, could ever get away with was insult upon injury. And so I think in that context that. You know, it's not just that, oh, this is, you know, some uh, process by which, you know, th this is just what happens when dramatic change happens. It creates a backlash. Yes, to some extent that that's true, but it's also rooted in actual things that that did happen um, and that in many cases uh, did not happen. Um, I think with African-Americans that the the police murders of young Black people um, and what felt like the utter impotency of the presidency to be able to do anything. We're constantly told that, you know, this is a jurisdictional issue. The president's powers are limited. and But they always seem limited when it comes to what can be done for Black people, what can be done for poor people. When it comes to mobilizing 
uh, power, you know, whether it's it's for war, internationally, whatever, then there does not seem to be the same hesitations. And we can talk about, well, of course, that that is the domain of executive power. And this, you know, we have a, a federal system within the United States. And, you know, there are limits to executive power. That might be true. But the way that people experience this on a day-to-day basis, it doesn't matter. And this is what fueled the radicalization. And I would also say, which I think is is important, that this leads to Trump, I think, is, is a part of that process. The kind of constant halfway measures of the Obama administration and the failure to really follow through um, or to achieve for whatever the reason, for whatever the political reasons, the Republican Party was horrible and racist. They weren't going to give him anything. But whatever the explanation, the inability to follow through and deliver the things that actually mattered uh, to people, um, you know, creates the conditions for uh, Donald Trump uh, to be able to assume the presidency. And that's not just a, a phenomenon in the United States. I think that we can see in many places around the world where uh, right-wing nationalists are, are taking power. It's the failure of the neoliberals in the third way uh, to deliver substantive change in the lives of ordinary people um, that creates the opening for, uh, you know, these crypto-fascists to be able to, to step in and say, we can fix it. We can solve these problems. So there's a bunch of super interesting things there. I, I would cut two things apart a, a, a bit to try to synthesize something that I think is interesting. So you know much more about the relationship between um, Obama and the, the African-American community and particularly around the, the, the police shootings. And I, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't try to um, reinterpret that. Uh, but I, I covered the healthcare and financial crisis efforts um, pretty deeply. And this is actually part of why I think change ends up holding its own backlash inside of it. So you know, something you said a couple of times is that we can talk about the logic of why they had to bail out banks to save credit markets or why the president's um, powers are limited in this or that domain. But the experience of it is that it just totally sucks and it's terrible and people suffer. And but I do think that there can be a tendency to to wipe away those first parts a little bit too easily that, um, you know, America came through that economic crisis both terribly and better than virtually any other country that absorbed a crisis like that ever. Um, when they like I remember talking to them and, and and trying to work this through and talking to economists about like what could you do with the banks? What were the possibilities? And I am of the opinion there were better things that one could have done. Like I would have liked to see cram down where people wrote down the 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 the, the um, mortgage notes on the banks. And I think there's more populist things you could have done that would have helped somewhat. But in terms of like TARP and this incredibly infuriating thing with the banks, I think that if you hadn't done it, the level of misery would have been unbelievable, would have been much worse than what we had. Or, you know, when they actually did try to do something more populist in HARP, which was like a more of a more of a actually not that well constructed, but nevertheless, a direct effort to help homeowners. That's what created the Tea Party or the public option. I mean, I covered, oh God, did I cover that one? And like they got healthcare for 10, 20 million people, and they couldn't pass it with a public option because they didn't have the they did not have the votes. And something that I think about with 
Bernie and 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 this sort of emergent, I think you are completely right to say that the radicalization that has followed Obama, both in terms of Donald Trump and in terms of the left, is in some ways a, a reaction to a president who got a lot of things done and in getting that much done, both in terms of what he symbolized and in terms of what he literally did, like with Obamacare. He created a reaction on the right, which led to Donald Trump, but he also created a reaction on the left, which led to people saying, no more. Like, how could you have stopped there more? Like, why, why did you let this go? And what worries me about that reaction is I don't hear an answer for any of the things that stopped him. And I'm not asking you to give me one. This is more an observation I'm making. But um, although if you have one, that'd be great. <laughs> um, but I, I talk to the Bernie Sanders people and I talk to the, the folks who are supporting Warren or any of them. And, you know, what you do about the Senate, like there, there's no answer. Um, like Bernie doesn't even like to talk about the filibuster. Forget like doing something bigger than that. And so I think that there's this tendency to look at Obama and say he didn't deliver when he he got much more done than anybody had for quite some time before him. But it is completely true that what he got done was frustrating. And in the way it got done, it was limited and it was half measures and it felt like so much less than we needed. And all that was true. And yet I don't understand the theory people have coming out of it that, well, maybe somebody just pushes harder and faster because they're just going to run into the same things with actually less power than Obama had with 60 votes in the Senate. And there just seems to me to be a like an unwillingness to grapple with like the institutional constraints of American political systems, which I I understand. I don't want to take that away from everybody. It's not that everybody has to to cover politics professionally, but it's more that if people don't do that, that that same cycle of hope following disillusionment. If Bernie Sanders gets in and there are 52 Democratic votes in the Senate or 49 and he gets nothing done, what is going to happen to this whole generation of people who is certain that getting a, a social Democrat um, in office was going to change everything only to find him like doing overtime rules through the Department of Labor? That there's just there's this weird unwillingness when I read some of the folks on the left to to really grapple with what stopped Obama from not being as far left as maybe they are, but at least as far left and as reformist as he wanted to be, um, which was a real a constant tension of that administration. I mean, I think part of it is understanding that the type of political change that people who are attracted to Sanders, for example, the type of, of, of change that people want is not something that can only be created at a formal political level. So when Bernie Sanders talks about the political revolution, the way that I interpret that is an understanding that Bernie Sanders could become president tomorrow. And if there is no grassroots movement on the ground that can articulate and give voice to Medicare for all and what that might mean, that won't happen. And so there, if there is no independent force outside of formal politics that creates a real grassroots pressure uh, to force the Congress to create bills that at least somewhat resemble the demands of the populace, then it's not going to happen. Um, and I think, you know, to, so to that extent, I do think that there can be a failure to understand that American politics are set up to not work. I mean, we talk about it as checks and balances and the different levels or wings of government, the executive, the legislative, and the 
uh, judicial is this is some sort of, uh, you know, positive thing. Um, or even, you know, within the relationship between Congress, um, the legislative and executive, um, and that they're actually, they're set up for gridlock. They're not set up for uh, to work, that it is incredibly difficult to get two chambers of Congress and the presidency to actually be in sync on particular policy questions. Um, and that typically the way that that has moved forward um, in like really big, robust and substantive social society changing um, policies has come through mass pressure. And so I would agree that part of the the, the limits, um, you know, if you think about something like Black Lives Matter and um, the Obama uh, presidency, you know, social movements are don't win just because they should. Um, and, you know, that there there has to be uh, a way of organizing beyond the momentum of events. And that if you don't have that component to the organizing, then you kind of defer to politics, which is is seized by conflict and in many ways is not the most effective way. Uh, to pursue a social agenda. So I agree with the complications, but I think part of it is an answer that doesn't actually have anything to do with the process itself, because you have seen uh, quite substantive uh, shifts in policy. Um, But again, it has coincided uh, with massive social upheaval. And without that, uh, we are quite naive to believe that there would be um, something resembling substantive change in in the country without it. I think that's I think that's very right. I mean, something about the financial crisis in particular that uh, when I I at some point wrote this like very big sort of retrospective of the first year of it for the Washington Post, and I was talking to historians of the Great Depression, and and a point they made a couple of times is that by the time Franklin Delano Roosevelt came in, it had been going on a long time. That it like the the economy was in utter freefall. When Barack Obama came in, it had begun, and there's this inter- and you know there's this kind of famous thing back then where they 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 bring out this projection about why they need the stimulus, and in their projections, even if you don't have it, unemployment only goes up to eight percent, and in reality, um, a couple months later, unemployment is already at ten percent. So like their projections were totally wrong about how bad this was going to be, which was, you know, whatever. These things are hard to. Pro- project. I don't I don't exactly fault the economists for that. But there's this interesting like counterfactual of if the election had been one year later or two years later and unemployment was 10.5% when he comes in, well what's possible then? Right? Cuz your your point about social movements coming in these times of upheaval I think is 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 really well taken. The the only other thing I will I will add on this is something that I just struggle to think about because there is a tension it seems to me between social movements and politics, which is that politics is demobilizing for social movements. So like using the Affordable characters as an example, you could imagine when that started a real social movement and they tried to build one in certain ways. People are critical of what they did with Organizing for America. And I honestly don't understand the guts of all that well enough to, to, to truly adjudicate that argument. But 
you can imagine a, a, a movement for, for universal health care. And then at some point, Ben Nelson, who is the Nebraska Democrat but is in a red state where Barack Obama is unpopular, is beginning to cut things out of the bill. And the movement is getting pissed because the people who are in the movement want the bill to be bigger. And every time you make one of those compromises to get a Ben Nelson, a Joe Lieberman, uh, you know, a, you name your person, an Evan Bayh onto the bill, the movement feels a little bit betrayed. And so the thing that seems to me to happen repeatedly is like these movements begin to fail as presidents try to achieve the thing they want because the thing they want um, uh, can't make it through the political process, particularly given everything you said so eloquently about the way our system is set up, which is pretty right-leaning actually given how given how much more conservative land is than people. <laughs> um, and so there just ends up being this thing where in campaigns, there's a lot of hope around movements. And then when the person leading that movement from the outside goes inside and begins to try to deliver on those promises and make those concessions, then they become part of the establishment and part of the problem. And then people are discussing with them in turn. And that's just a, it just seems to me like a true problem that people don't really know how to solve. There's something about the the need for some level of independence, but even without the the illusion that you can produce um, the kind of you know uncompromised legislation. I mean, it's not possible in the the political system and the political tools that we have. But the problem that we have now, I think, is that the elections. So 2020 becomes so big as, as the rebuke to Trump, as, a, as an opportunity to start anew, that it, it sucks all of the energy that could be placed towards beginning to cobble together those forces that will be necessary to create a grassroots component that, you know, will be heavily debated and contested um, and fought over, but that I think could still create the kind of pressure necessary to produce some kind of public health care program or some kind of public college program. But I, I, without the forces around that, that see that as its ultimate uh, objective and not just winning an election and understanding that even in the the very off chance that that Sanders were able to win the presidency, that not only would he have to fight the Republican Party, but he'd have to fight half of the Democratic Party. And so what kind of forces would be necessary to overcome that? And we're nowhere near that. I mean, I think in terms of, of social movements now, that the constitutive elements for uh the uh, a climate justice movement are there, uh, even around immigrant rights, where it doesn't get reported on um, except locally. But there have been small groups of people and bigger groups of people who have been demonstrating for months now around this country's border and detention policies. And so the constitutive elements are are there, but it's yet to be cohered into something I think you could call a social movement. You know, and there are committees around healthcare and, and all that sort of thing. But I think that until that is able to cohere into a substantial force that has the ability to create pressure, that this is a problem uh, that we will have to confront. In some ways, it doesn't matter 
if Sanders gets in or not. I think the expectation that something dramatically has to change with the way that uh, healthcare is delivered in this country has been raised. And the, the issue becomes, how are we going to be in a position to make that happen? The debates, I think, that are important and necessary, even beyond the specific question of, of, of politics, I think there's so much situated on the election that we haven't really gotten into that discussion and what that would look like and what it will mean. But I think that it's a necessary part of the, of, of the discussion that is yet to happen. I think the the rest of it will probably have to 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 wait for another day, but I think this is a good place to to come to a close for here. So let me ask you the question we always used to end the podcast, which is what are three books you've read that have influenced you that you would recommend to the audience? The first book is Black Reconstruction by W.E.B. Du Bois. It was written in 1935, which is about uh the Reconstruction era after the the Civil War and the the promise of democracy and why that ultimately fails. The second book is a collection of poems by John Wieners called The Collected Works of John Wieners. John Wieners was a a white man, gay poet, who was writing in the 1950s and 1960s. And his poems resonated deeply with me because of the urbane nature uh, of them. I love cities. I love to think about cities, to write about cities and people who live in cities. Um, and Wiener's poems uh, were actually um, quite, they were important for me at a time, you know, when I was in my 20s um, with no clear idea about what I was doing. But those poems in some ways were uh, an architecture uh, for my interest in urban life, even articulated through uh, the body of this uh, gay white man living um, in Boston. The last book to swing back to politics is probably Angela Davis's uh, Women, Race, and Class, which I've, I've found to be a sophisticated intervention uh, and way of um, understanding women's Black women's oppression uh, as as an expression of class inequality um, in the United States, but that was located uh, in uh, the particular experiences of Black women that are shaped by what this country presumes to be um, their knowledge uh, of uh, its knowledge of of Black women um, that is very specific, that in, in the classic kind of way we understand um, intersectionality that could not be reduced uh, to questions of just gender and, and race, but um, is, is constructed through uh, the particular ways that Black women have experienced life in this country. So I would say those, those three are pretty important for me. Kianga Yamada-Taylor, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you to Professor Taylor for being here. Thank you to Cynthia Gill for engineering, to Jeffrey Geld for producing, to Roger Karma for researching. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media Podcast Network production. Mm-hmm.